probably noticed so far that uh, several of the things that we've been talking about have to do with vineyards. About 10 years ago, I was preparing to preach a portion of scripture that focused on a vineyard. And I asked a member of the church I served at that time who owned a vineyard in Loudoun County if he would mind if I went and uh, walked through his vineyard. Now, reflecting back on that morning, I wrote, walking in a vineyard at sunrise, straight lines of twisted vines, full of brown branches, green leaves, purple fruit, that invite me to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm no writer, but the sheer beauty of the vineyard even squeezed a little poem out of me. Vineyards have a, uh, a romantic charm in our Western culture, don't they? I mean, they're just gorgeous. And go out in the morning when the sun is rising and there might be a little fog on the hillside or in the valley. Ah, it's breathtaking. But in ancient culture, in Israel... Vineyards were less about walking in the morning and more about working for a living. It wasn't so much the romantic charm. Vineyards were really only good for one thing, fruit. Fruit that put wine in a bottle and fruit on the table. And on one occasion, Isaiah wanted Judah to see themselves the way God sees them. So he used the very familiar concept of a vineyard. He told them, get this, that he was going to sing a song, a love song about a vineyard. But this love song had a twist designed to shock his hearers, and to drive his point deep into their heart. Our sermon text this morning is Isaiah chapter 5. Please take your copy of God's Word or maybe your ESV journal. And by the way, if you don't have one of the ESV journals, uh, we have one for everyone. They're in the back by the steps. Please see me afterwards. I'd be happy to get one if there's not one at the top of the steps waiting for you. Find Isaiah chapter 5, and let's listen to Isaiah's song this morning. And as we do, my prayer is that his point will bear fruit in your heart. This is God's word through Isaiah. Let's just read verse 1 through 7 to begin with in chapter 5. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, 
judge between me and my vineyard? What more was there for what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah's parable of the vineyard focuses on three elements, doesn't it? First of all, in verse 1 and 2, we notice the work of the landowner. The work of the landowner. In verse 1 and 2, notice that vineyards are an enormous investment of time and labor and money. Here, the owner of this vineyard did all the work that was necessary for this vineyard to produce good fruit. In verse 1, look, the hill that he planted this vineyard on was very fertile. In verse 2, the owner prepared the land. He dug, he cleared, he planted, he built, he hewed. This was a massive investment that this landowner put into this vineyard. But then in verse 2 at the end, instead of the work of the owner, notice the fruit of the vineyard. He says at the end of verse 2, and he looked for it to yield grapes. That's what you do when you have a vineyard. You look for it to yield grapes, but the twist, the shock, but it yielded wild grapes. And in that culture, that crowd would have gasped because all the investment, all the time, all the work, all the money invested in that land, and then that vineyard grows wild grapes? Interestingly, the Hebrew for wild can also be translated stink. This was stink fruit, worthless. These grapes were sour and unusable. So the owner begins to examine the situation. He asks the audience, the hearers, to consider. Look at verse 3 and 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? The crowd would have shouted out in that culture, nothing. You you did everything that you should have done and could have done. There was nothing left undone. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so the landowner decides to destroy 
the vineyard. So we see the work of the landowner and the fruit of the vineyard and now the destruction of the vineyard. Verses 3 through 7. Notice what he says. I will remove the hedge. Everything is going to be devoured now by the wild beasts. I will break down its walls and it's going to be trampled. I'm going to make it a waste. In other words, I'm going to abandon it so that nothing but the thorns and the briars and the weeds will grow up. Verse 6. He doesn't just abandon it, but he's aggressive. He says, I'm going to command the rain to not rain any longer. How do you feel about this landowner destroying the vineyard? How does that sit with you? Does it feel cruel and unusual? If you have a romanticized view of vineyards, it might feel cruel and unusual. But if the vineyard was your source of living, if the vineyard wasn't a romantic idea, but if it was actually to put wine in a bottle and fruit on the table, and maybe to be able to sell so that you have money just like your job, if it was your living, your crop, then you understand that's the only thing you could do was to destroy that vineyard and then try again. This parable emphasizes the destruction of the vineyard. Everyone knows, everyone knows in that culture that vineyards were only good for one thing, fruit. And if the fruit from this vine is stink fruit, wild grapes, worthless sour grapes, and there's nothing more to do than to destroy it. He takes the parable and then he applies it to Judah. Isaiah wasn't merely just singing this love song, kind of strange, wasn't it? A love song with this twist, a, a parabolic view of this vineyard. Now he begins to press it on his hearers. Read verse 7 again. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah that he was speaking to are his pleasant planting. He, the Lord, looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And while that's poignant in English, it would have been doubly so in the original language because in Hebrew, those words rhymed. There was rhythm and rhyme to it that would have creatively pressed home the point. Looked for justice, but bloodshed. Righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Verse 8 through 30 after the parable of the vineyard, he applies the parable to Judah. And what Isaiah does here is he presses it home on the hearers. He really wants them to understand God sees you this way, and it's not a pretty picture. In verse 7, he began to revisit the three points of his parable. 
the work, the fruit, and the destruction. Look in verse 7, the work of God. I mean, just think about the story of Israel. The story of Israel is the story of God's covenant love and work to provide and protect for this special people. The work of God for His vineyard has been an enormous investment. God has done an enormous work to provide for His people and to protect His people. In the truest sense, Judah is God's delight there in verse 7 when he says that the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. That's the delight of God. But the fruit, the fruit of Judah in verse 8 through 24 is definitely stink fruit. So he emphasizes the stench of the fruit in verse 8 through 24 by listing six different woes. The six woes in 8 through 24 are the six wild grapes produced by Judah. Just as an overview, looking at this section, verse 8 through 24, the first two woes address the wild grapes of materialism. Judah at that time and place, is living for wealth and leisure. And then the second set of four woes moves away from materialism and addresses the wild grapes of morality. Judah is living according to their own way. They're rejecting God's law and God's word and living according to their own moral code. So the fruit of Judah is wild and has a stench in the nostrils of God. And so he uses an appropriate term, woe, woe, judgment. If you see this kind of fruit coming from your heart, Judah... Six woes. Woe number one in verse 8 through 10. Let's read it. The wild grapes of pursuing wealth. Verse 8 through 10. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, which is a small amount. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah, another small amount. See, in this first woe, Judah was guilty of pursuing wealth. Of all of the things that God promised his people, land was one of the greatest blessings, wasn't it? And he brought them out of bondage into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And what did we know about that land? That it flowed with milk and honey. It was a 
fertile land, land for them on earth was one of the great blessings of God. But what do we see here in verse 8? We see that their greed caused them to pursue wealth and acquire land. And when God gave his people land, he gave extensive laws to ensure that everyone, including women and children and poor, were, had a secure inheritance. And here, what the wealthy are doing is they are acquiring all the land. And then when people get in trouble, they're squeezing them out of their own property. They're abusing the women and the children and the poor. And so in verse 9 and 10, we see that their land will become a barren curse. The wild grapes of pursuing wealth. Why, the, woe number two. In verse 11 and 12. Not just pursuing wealth, but then using that wealth to indulge self. In woe number two, we see the wild grapes of indulging self. Read verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. What are they getting up to do? Work hard? No. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. The wild fruit born in Judah is that of indulging self, living a life of sloth and leisure and pursuit of pleasure. And when they indulge themselves in their pleasure and leisure, they become numb and blind to God's work in them, for them, and around them in the world. Isn't that what happens when we become inebriated with pleasure? We become numb to God. Now in verse 13 through 17, Isaiah stops and he, and he says, for that kind of materialism, those first two woes, here's God's judgment. Verse 13, therefore, here's what's going to happen. A therefore of judgment in light of abusing God's material blessings. Verse 13 through 17, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. 
Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Lest you missed it, Isaiah just took exactly what he said before in the woes and showed the therefore of judgment. Those who acquire land in verse 8 have to leave the land in exile in verse 13. Those who pursue drink in verse 11 are thirsty in verse 13. Those who have a greedy appetite for the material blessings of God in verse 8 through 12, as Derek Kidner says, lose what they have lived for and find themselves being devoured by an appetite more insatiable than their own. The grave and death consumes them. And in verse 15 and 16, in judgment, the haughty man is brought low. But God shows himself to be exalted in righteousness. That's just the first set. The first two. Friends, Isaiah wants Judas to see themselves as God sees them. And it is a nasty picture. When God came and looked at his people, desiring to see the fruit of justice and righteousness, he found wild grapes. Here's the second set of four. The second set does not dwell on materialism, but it addresses the moral decline. That Israel rejected God's way, God's law, and God's word, and started living to their, according to their own moral standards. They came up with a way that was more socially acceptable. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Woe number three. The wild grapes of embracing sin. Judah embraced sin. (laughs) Listen to how Isaiah describes this in verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with a cart rope. Who say... Let him, God, be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Wow, what brazen arrogance. They have embraced sin as if they hitched their wagon to it. And now they're calling God to do something about it. They're saying, let's just wait and see if God comes quickly. Alec Matier says, the progressive nature of sin leads to the arrogance which demands that God prove himself, the skepticism which doubts that he is active in the world, and the blindness which cannot see him at work. 
When we embrace sin, we might think that because things are going well for us that God isn't concerned and isn't going to act. Just wait. Woe number four. Verse 20. The wild grapes of not embracing sin, but justifying sin. So they didn't just embrace sin and know it was wrong, but now they're justifying sin. Read verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They embraced it. Now they justify it. Friends, I'm afraid that this is not just the culture in Judah at that day. This sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Woe number five. Having embraced sin and justifying self, woe number five addresses the wild grapes of trusting self. Now that you've taken God out of the picture, you set yourself up as the authority. So you trust self. Verse 21, woe to, the, to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The autonomy of self. We govern ourselves by our way. We know what's best. And finally, woe number six. When God looked at his people, Judah, he saw the wild grapes of abusing others. They embraced sin. They justified their sins. They trusted themselves. And then they took their own power and they used it to abuse others. Verse 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink. What do they do with their wine and their strong drink? Verse 23, they acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So this last woe is not simply a prohibition against drunkenness. Uh, They're heroes at drinking wine. They're strong, valiant soldiers when it comes to mixing strong drinks. Powerful men, right? But what do they do with their power? They abuse people. Those who are guilty, they let them off the hook for the right price. Those who are actually innocent, what does it say? They deprive him of his right. This is the degradation of morality in Judah. God's vineyard. The people for whom he had made such a tremendous investment called them to himself, dug and planted and protected and provided for. And now Judah 
is bearing nothing but wild grapes. And so in verse 24, he finishes this second section of four again by mirroring the four woes that came before it. Read verse 24, the the therefore of judgment in light of rejecting God's moral law. Verse 24, therefore, because of these woes, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will become as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. Why? For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In verse 19 above, they embraced sin and waited to see what the Lord would do. In verse 24, His judgment will be as swift as fire, devouring stubble. In verse 21 above, they claimed self-sufficiency. And in verse 24, their roots will be exposed as rotten. In verse 22 above, they used their power for injustice. And in verse 24, the fruit of their lives will vanish like dust. This is what happens when you reject God's moral law. And embrace sin, justify sin, trust yourself, and then use your own power and authority to abuse others. So in light of the work of God, the fruit of Judah, he presses that third implication of the parable, the destruction of Judah. Just as the landowner destroyed the vineyard because of the worthless fruit? Look at what God will do in light of the wild grapes produced in Judah. However awful the fruit was, this judgment is terrifying. Let's read verse 25 through 30 as we see the the judgment or the destruction of Judah. Verse 25, Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger has not turned away, and His hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, 
like young lions. As they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Verse 25 through 30 is a graphic, terrifying picture of what God will do in judgment against Judah. Because of their sin. The anger of the Lord is described with graphic, terrifying metaphors. Verse 25, like an earthquake that unearths graves and leaves dead bodies laying all over the street. Verse 26 through 30, like a lion, God's judgment is like a lion roaring, growling over its prey. Go back to verse 26 and see what God's going to do to Judah. Friends, listen. I cannot emphasize how serious and terrifying this is. This is what God thinks about sin. He says he's going to whistle for the dogs of war to come and devour his people like a lion growls over its prey and none will rescue. Imagine. God whistling for the nations to come from afar. And how does it say they come? Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Their their sandals are tight. Their waist strap. There's nothing hindering these. They're coming to destroy God's people at His request. (sighs) Isaiah 5 ends in darkness. Isaiah 5 offers no hope. It's lights out for Judah because of their sin. That ends the reading of God's word in Isaiah chapter 5. Let's dismiss and go home. Isaiah chapter 5 ends in darkness and lights out. But Isaiah doesn't. God has already said in chapter 4 last week, God has already said in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 that there will be a branch that He will save out of His people that will bear fruit. When God sends judgment on His people, He has already given the hope of the remnant who will come out of judgment. 
and the remnant that comes out of Babylon, the, the nations that, caught, that heed God's whistle, that remnant in the future is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the branch, who happens to also be the Lion of Judah, who devours sin and death and hell. How does Isaiah chapter 5 apply to Winchester Baptist Church? Well, first of all, friends, it reminds us of God's work in our lives. Just as we saw the work of the landowner and the work of God and his people, boy, this, this picture of the landowner cultivating and caring for and working in his vineyard reminds us that all we need to do is just look around at our lives and see the grace and the goodness of God to us. Stop just for a minute and consider all of the blessings of God to you. He has given you life and breath and everything. He's done all of the work. Just like a vineyard, you've done nothing but receive from his hand. What should be the response of every person to the godness of God and the goodness of God? Well, it should be the fruit of gratitude and the the fruit of worship and the fruit of love for God and, and love for our fellow man, right? But just as that landowner looked for fruit and found wild grapes, this parable causes us to evaluate the fruit of our lives. It evaluates the fruit of our lives. And an honest look at the fruit that comes naturally from our hearts is a crop of stink fruit, isn't it? I mean, by nature, we don't acknowledge God as God. We set ourselves up as God. (laughs) By nature, we don't give Him thanks for gifts. We take what He gives and want more. Make little gods out of them. Live our lives for them. We love God's gifts instead of God. We don't live under God's authority. We set ourselves up as our own authority, making our own laws and our own word in our own way. Come on, examine your own fruit of your own life and ask, is it not true? Don't you see wild grapes? The, in fact, the same wild grapes in Judah, in our own hearts. Do we not grow wild grapes of materialism? Do we not naturally live for wealth so we, that we can have a life of leisure and pleasure? I think we do. We don't have to go far from Isaiah 5 to see that in our own life we grow the wild grapes of of the degradation of morality, setting up our own way and replacing God's law and despising God's word. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. An honest evaluation of our life reveals bad fruit. An honest evaluation of our heart reveals it's none but a bad vine. So Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah's parable, 
warns us of God's judgment against sin. You came to church this morning to be reminded of God's work. To be shown the fruit of your life and then to be warned of God's judgment against sin. Friends, when we look at Isaiah chapter 5, we, we know that this is where all sin leads. All of it. I don't care whether you're young or old, male or female, Christian or a God-hater. This is where all sin leads. This is God's view of sin, whether it's our view of sin or not. Some might think that this picture of judgment is cruel. God whistling for the dogs of war or a landowner destroying his vineyard. But friends, if you think that God judging sin is cruel, then you have forgotten the extraordinary lengths God has gone and the incredible personal sacrifice that God has made to rescue you from the justice that you and I deserve. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated His love for us in that, are you ready? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Now that we're reconciled, shall be we shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Isaiah's parable warns of God's judgment against sin. But God has provided an escape from judgment by sacrificing His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God provided a way. Friends, to put it in Isaiah's terms, God made a new vine. A true vine. And so, Isaiah chapter 5 points us to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Israel always knew that they were God's vineyard, but now Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And my Father, the landowner, the vine dresser. So when God destroyed his vineyard, Judah, he promised to preserve that branch, and that branch ultimately 
is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And our only hope to bear good fruit is not to try hard, to do more, to do better. We can't. We'll just bear more stink fruit. Our only hope is to be removed from the vine of Adam and grafted by faith into the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's true vine. He's the only one who produces the good fruit of justice and righteousness in verse 7, and the only one who lives according to God's law and loves God's word according to verse 24. Our only hope, friends, to produce good fruit is to abide in Christ. So the big question is, what does it mean and what does it look like to abide in Jesus? Because that's the real message of Isaiah chapter 5. Well, John chapter 15, if you would look there as we close our sermon, John 15 verse 1 through 11, teaches us that abiding in Christ is the life of Christ flowing in you just like a branch is connected to a vine. When we're connected to Jesus by faith, His life flows through us. And what does it do? The result is that we bear fruit. In verse 2, we bear fruit. In verse 2, at the end, we bear more fruit. And in verse 5, we bear much fruit. That's what happens when the power of the Lord Jesus Christ flows through you when connected by faith. You bear fruit. And what kind of fruit is it? The fruit of Jesus is love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Abiding in Christ is the life of Christ abiding in you. In verse 7 and 8, notice that abiding in Christ is the word of Christ abiding in you. And you know what happens? You will glorify God and prove that you're a disciple of Jesus because His word abides in you. In verse 9 and 10, abiding in Christ is the love of Christ abiding in us. And the result is that we will keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? The greatest of these is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't bear that fruit on our own. Only as we're connected to Christ by faith. And finally, look at verse 11 in John 15. Abiding in Christ is the joy of Christ abiding in you. And the result is that we experience the fullness of joy. Isaiah chapter 5 doesn't end in darkness for us. It ends in the light and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine. And a call to everyone here to abide in Him by faith every day.
See, this is not just something that you do when you were at camp when you were a kid. Or one time when you came to Christ and you prayed a prayer of repentance and faith. But the only way that you, as a Christian, can ever bear good fruit is as you are connected and abiding, remaining connected to Jesus by faith. His life, His word, His love, and His joy flows through us. Praise God for God's rescue through the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank You this morning for Your work. Not just the the goodness that You have given us as members of this earth, but the work that You have accomplished, completed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus by faith because we know that we we only bear bad fruit in and of ourselves, but we want to bear good fruit, and we know that we can only do that when we come to Jesus by faith. And I pray that every person in this room, every kid, every teenager, every adult, would turn away from their own self-effort and turn to Jesus so that they can bear good fruit for your glory. And we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.